Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kuneen. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Education Suspended. Glad to have you back. Jessica Pfeiffer here, one of your co-hosts. Today, we connect with Jace Williams. In 2021, Jace received the Prime Minister Education for Excellence Award for Wellbeing in New Zealand. He shares with us so many insightful experiences that he went through. Fun fact number one being he actually did not graduate from high school and he's now an amazing principal. There were so many things to take away from this conversation. I was so honored that he shared his full educational story, including the role that his indigenous Maori culture plays and how he utilizes the themes of rhythm and regulation rooted in that culture and brings them into the classroom. He gives us specific things that he did to change his school to better meet the needs of his kids and the community. And he really talks about the need to push back against the system. I actually think at one point I say in this podcast, he needs to make a t-shirt because he says to change the system, you have to step away from the system. And it's interesting how he did that as a principal. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. Sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Jace Williams. Here comes Jace. The whole gang's here. Hi, Jace. We are so excited to have you here. There's a lot of things that we want to talk about. Uh, I know that you listen to our episodes, so you know how we begin. But I'll just remind everyone, we start all of our episodes the same with our guests, introducing themselves to our listeners, letting everyone know what you do, how you got there. And if you feel so inclined, which we would appreciate, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your own educational journey, and if there's any connections, we'll just start with that. Sure. Tēnā koutou ko Karangahāke te maunga, ko Ohini Muri te awa, ko Tainui te waka, ko Ngāti Tamatera te iwi, ko te pai o Hauraki te marae, no Hauraki a hau i Tipuaki a hau i Whanganui e noho ana hau ki a hurere. Ko George Williams, raua ko Lorraine Kenny Okumatua, ko Kellyanne Simon Tukuhua Wahine, uh, ko Simon Rato Casey, ko Jasmine Aku Tamariki, ko Isaiah raua ko Joseph Aku Mokopuna, ko Jace Williams Toku Ingoa, no reira tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. So that was my pepeha, which is uh, me acknowledging my tipuna or my ancestors and places of significance to my family lineage throughout time, um, acknowledging my parents, my wife, my children and my two grandkids as well and then I end with introducing myself so my name is Jace Williams and I'm the principal of Henry Hill School um, which is an elementary school uh, here in Napier New Zealand. We have about 300 kids so we're what's called a small to medium-sized elementary school in New Zealand. Majority of our children are they look like me so they're Māori or they're Pacifica so mainly Samoan. I've always felt like these kind of schools are home for me because in many ways, I'm still that child in the classroom. But my own educational journey, I didn't actually know I was Māori, which is the Indigenous people of New Zealand, until I was about 10 years of age. And something went missing in the classroom, and I felt like there was 36 pairs of eyes uh, all staring at me. 
Um, and that was the first time I knew what it felt like to be Māori, to be marginalised, to be judged. So throughout my, my education, it was kind of frowned upon to, to learn about things Māori, to learn our culture, to learn our language. Just long story short, my father was of the generation at school that was uh, physically disciplined for speaking his own language at school. And we're only talking about like, the 1940s, 50s, so we're not going back too far. But children were, were, were smacked for speaking their own language at school. So it's a language that kind of died off for, for a long time. So my experience at school was it wasn't cool to be Māori. So I didn't take these small opportunities that were on offer because of peer pressure, because of negative comments made by educators about my culture. So it's not something that I've delved into in, until much later in life. But I absolutely make sure that my children, my grandchildren, and all the children at school don't miss out on any opportunities to learn and share their identity and culture. I'm trained in the neurosequential model in education. And, and I guess what that's done for me is it's given me the, the words and the theory and the understanding behind a lot of stuff that I've done that our school's done, um, I guess, intrinsically. We've just known it's, it's right for kids. And I've come to learn that a lot of the stuff that we're doing is something that's inherent in my DNA as someone who's Indigenous as Māori. It's how we always learned and how we always shared. So it's really nice to put together all those pieces of the puzzle now. So I guess that's a little bit about me. And um, I've been principal here at Henry Hill School for 10 years. That's quite a long time, but I guess it's, it's given me time to really try out some stuff and make a few mistakes along the way and learn and grow from those. So thank you. I want to go down a rabbit hole for a second that I was not intending on going down, which is going to happen a lot today, Jace. So buckle yep. up. <laughs> That's just what we do. So you shared your father's experience not too long ago as a student in New Zealand mm -hmm. and the reality of his own identity actually caused punishment. There were yes. consequences for that. For you as his son, were there any generational implications that you weren't even aware of that he maybe gave to you, right? Your own interpretation of education. Absolutely. He was embarrassed to be Māori. He'd voiced it before, not to myself, but to, to other siblings of mine who are older. Um, you need to be immersed in New Zealand European culture because that's going to get you somewhere. Being Māori is going to get you nowhere because that was his experience, right? My mother is New Zealand European, so my lineage is um, Irish. I'd probably be one of the darkest skinned Irish people you ever meet. So in New Zealand, I, I would be described as someone who's Māori, but I was actually brought up middle class Pākehā or middle class New Zealand European. In many ways, uh, my culture has been hidden from me. So absolutely. And like I said, at school, it was, I guess, hidden even, even more by comments from educators that, that it's not worthwhile learning my language. Honestly, I'm, I'm 44 now. It's taken to this point for me to truly embrace my culture because it was something for a long time I was embarrassed of too, because that was all passed down to me. I am heartened by the fact that my three children can speak more of my native tongue than I can, that my grandchildren are already learning songs. Our culture, their identity is strong as a four-year-old and a five-year-old. So while my, my um, understanding of my culture and identity is not as strong, it's heartening to know that my children and grandchildren are immersed in their culture. That's a beautiful thing. And by the way, thank you for the glorious introduction. What was the journey like to start to appreciate your Indigenous culture and your background? How did that happen? Yeah, I think just before I started at Henry Hill School, so about 10 years ago, 
in New Zealand, we have certain public holidays where, where schools close, businesses are closed to acknowledge different things. And Waitangi Day is one of them. So Waitangi Day is the day in 1840 where Māori New Zealand European signed a treaty through the British government to essentially share the land. And of course, <laughs> historically, that, that's not what happened. I remember seeing a school and um, a local school and they were celebrating Māori culture and it was very token. Everything I saw was as tokenistic. It wasn't truly acknowledging the culture. It was purely checking the boxes, right? So when I started at Henry Hill School, we we're going to make sure that everything we do was authentic and organic and meaningful for our children and our community. So I, I guess it goes back to about 10 years ago and, and making sure, because I mean, I have this, had this chip on my shoulder because of my lack of identity, that our children will never miss out on opportunities. So I made sure in every kind of way here, they were immersed in their culture 24-7. I probably missed this. How did you get into education? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. So I didn't finish high school. So I actually dropped out of high school. You'd be hard-pressed to find another principal that didn't finish high school. But I dropped out because it, it just wasn't for me at the time. I wasn't ready to, to learn. So what I actually did was on my 18th birthday, 18 is significant because the day I turned 18 was the final basketball game of the season at high school. And I love basketball. So once the game was over, I, I signed out of school because I was 18, which meant I could get a benefit from the government. So I got paid staying at home. But, but I was just over high school. I, I was learning. I felt like I was learning nothing. I felt like I was going nowhere. And then about a year later, I um, signed up to go on a summer camp in the United States. And I went over to a place, it was Williams Bay in uh, Wisconsin. So it was. I, I feel it was about 45 minutes from Milwaukee. And I, and I spent yeah, about two months at, at summer camp. And I realized that I liked children and I felt like they kind of liked me back. And came back to New Zealand and did quite a bit of coaching, mainly in basketball and soccer, and felt like I was getting that same kind of joy from kids. It was selfish at first, like I enjoyed what I got from kids. So then I did a teacher aid or, or learning assistant um, at a school in the classroom and I thought, I think I'm a bit better than this. I, th I think I could probably be a teacher. So I enrolled into university and did a, um, a degree in education. And I was actually ready to learn then, like as a, as a 19, 20 year old, I was ready to learn. It's interesting because nothing I learned actually prepared me for the classroom. I actually learned everything once I stepped foot in the classroom and 30 plus kids are staring at me. I'm like, shit, what do I do? You know, that's when the learning really started. I never, ever set out to be a principal. It was never something I wanted to do, even assistant principal, nothing like that. I just wanted to teach children, but it got to the point where I could see that the system was broken. I could see that there were better things we could do to help support the students uh, learning. And I knew you couldn't do that from the just the classroom. So I guess I started that next journey where I started moving up through the ranks in, in order to create that change that was desperately needed in, in learning. Yeah, I love that you said, I enjoyed what I got from the kids. And I know you yeah. laughed about it. So I don't know if that's a good thing. I actually think it's a really good thing. And Steve and I talk about it quite a bit. That it can be very easy to minimize that actual intrinsic, pleasurable mm. reward that we get. And recuperating from COVID... We have identified that that seems to be one of the key ingredients that was missing for so many teachers during COVID mm -hmm. is that they didn't get the typical reward that, yeah, that give and take from kids. And that really took a toll. So I'm glad that you were able just to identify, like it yeah. felt good. I, my bucket was filled by these kids. Earlier, you said that you were really put off by, by the token lens systems, just wanting to check boxes and I feel as though one of the easiest 
areas in which we do that is this trauma-informed perspective, is this restorative justice. I mean, you name it, everything's got a flashy title and everyone is just checking boxes and no one is changing the actual system. So I guess as a teacher, then becoming a principal, what did you do to ensure that you actually were not just doing that? How did you make this a systemic change? Well, we, we actually had to check the boxes for a little while. So, so when I stepped foot into Henry Hill School, we were on a, a one to two year review cycle. What that means is every generally every three years, uh, the government sends in an auditing team. They, they're called ERO, Education Review Office. And they spend anywhere from three days to five days in your school checking boxes. It's a real token approach. But stepping into the school, we I guess we were a failure before I came because instead of a three-year cycle, we were on one to two, which meant instead of every three years I'm coming, they were turning up twice a year. So we had to actually get rid of them first. And that took a little bit of time. Once we checked the boxes, it gave us that unique opportunity knowing that it would be another three years before they'd come back. What we also did at the time was, and this, this is a little, little part of my trauma, but as a first-time principal, um, I was asked to speak at a local principals conference here. So I got up in front of my um, colleagues. And as I started speaking, I looked out and I noticed that no one looked like me. Even the, even the other Māori people in the room didn't look like me either. And then I felt, I don't know if this is true or not, but I felt like people were talking about me as I was presenting. And the whole situation was really uncomfortable and I became really dysregulated. And long story short, I've never been back. So, you know, most principals go to these meetings maybe once a month. I haven't been back for nine years. So I'm in this really unique position where we got rid of ERO, the Education Review Office, for at least three years. But, but also um, our school and myself, we were untainted by politics, by the government, by principals associations, because I just didn't go to anything. My only focus was our school. So for three years, I got to focus on our school. We raised our academic achievement levels from around 50 to 60% of kids achieving where they're supposed to, to over 90%, which if you look at other schools in New Zealand, very few could say they're over 90%. No one that was a low socioeconomic school like ours with such a high proportion of Māori and Pacifica students could say that anywhere. So we had the top academic outcomes in the whole city. When the Education Review Office came back three years later, they loved it because we were organically checking all their boxes, but they also could see how rich the, the culture was at the school. It was kind of the start of our a social and emotional learning journey, I think we called it at the time. And once we got that check off then, that gave us another three years. It's, it's really been like a six or seven year journey but untainted by government. And, and the most, I guess, ironic thing out of all this is we've worked outside the box. Everything we've done is outside the box. And then the government, specifically the prime minister, ends up giving us award for working outside the box. We, we've literally done the opposite of what we've been told. And that's why we've been successful. And we've been rewarded from it by the top levels of government. So it's pretty cool. Everyone should know that you won, and I might not get this exactly right, but you got the Prime Minister's Education for Excellence Award, at least in a category of well-being, which is marvelous. Now I want to know a little more nuts and bolts, and so will our listeners. We know the success story. We know the end. We kind of don't know the steps to the end. What are some significant things you did, especially as it relates to Māori culture and the truths from your Indigenous experience? I think three key things. So the first one was increasing our knowledge of trauma. 
So what we did way back is we, we looked at what were the, so, so the children not achieving academically, what were the reasons, what were the barriers? And we identified attendance, we identified health, we identified behavior at the time, and also trauma. So our definition of trauma at the time was quite deficit. So it was a child coming from a single parent household. It was perhaps it wasn't a lot of money in that family that a parent had been in jail or, or was currently in jail, or there was a gang affiliation as well. So that was our criteria for trauma at the time. So professional development around trauma. So I was really fortunate to hear Dr. Perry speak a number of years ago in a conference in San Francisco. I'll be honest, I didn't know who he was, but he stepped up on stage and this whole auditorium of a couple of thousand people stood up and started cheering like it was a rock concert. I couldn't believe it. And he, he loved it. He soaked it up. But it, but it was the second he started talking and everything he said resonated with me personally. It resonated with me as an educator. I could think of all these children or teachers in the past as he spoke about these different scenarios. But what I did was I went outside and I bought Dr. Perry's book, The Boy's Race as a Dog. And I actually chose not to go to some of the uh, workshops. And I sat there in the lobby of that hotel and I read that book from front to back. It was daylight when I started and it was pitch black when I finished, but I couldn't put it down. That was the start of me looking into the neurosequential model in education. And Steve, what, what you taught me and what Dr. Perry taught me, I went back and shared with staff. That was a big key. A second key was changing our relationships with our community. So we stopped doing parent-teacher conferences. We stopped them altogether because my experience in them was when you put a teacher, a parent, and even the child in the room, someone lies. It could be the parent lying you now to cover up what's happening at home. It could be the teacher lying to cover up perhaps a lack, lack of teaching or lack of academic progress. And the poor child's sitting there like, what's going on? If someone's lying and the child doesn't really have a voice. So we changed that narrative and instead we, we created this this concept we call community day. So for once a term, so we have four terms here, like your semesters, we have four a year, and we invite our families in to learn alongside their children in class. And the learning is hands-on based. It's uh, based on environmental sustainability, which is important to us here, and te Māori, so Māori culture. And our parents learn alongside their children. And what we've had is 100% attendance each year for five years doing that way. And what happened was, I, I believe when, when COVID happened and, um, you know, we were locked down at home for so long, our learning was relational and it was the same style of learning that our parents experienced in the classroom alongside their kids. There were no surprises. So we had no real issues with that. We also flooded, our school flooded in 20, November 2020. We lost physically two thirds of our school overnight. And, and the learnings from Dr. Perry were important because if, if I didn't know the stuff I'd learned through a neurosequential model in education, I probably would have quit. It was one of the hardest experiences in my life, trying to lead a school through, through a flooding and having the right words. But I remember Dr. Perry, when COVID first hit, and he talked to stuff about, you know, being physically distant, but staying emotionally close. Th those kind of concepts were things I put into the words that I used. I was more um, mindful of my tone, delivery, all that kind of stuff that I never really cared about before. I cared about because I realized that we only get one shot at this because our community is hurting right now. So, so that was really important. So that, that's the first big change. The, the second big change was making our practice in classrooms more relational and more regulatory. So what we did was for five years, we've been doing yoga in class to start the day. So our school day starts at 9 a.m. Uh, we removed the school bells seven years ago. There are no bells ringing in our school. 
it's something I learned from a principal in Sydney in Australia. And he said to me, aside from schools, the only place you hear bells are factories and prisons. And he said, why would you ever want to condition your children to those two places? So I came straight back in and got rid of the bell. But at 9 a.m., our children walk straight into classroom, not a word is said, and straight into yoga. And it's about a seven-minute yoga session for those children that come into school maybe one or two minutes late. They just step in and join in. No longer does administration workers give them a piece of their mind for being late. I don't, I don't go out there and say, how come you're late? Or the teacher doesn't say, how come you're late? Because... You know, if that's what's happening to that child when they're late, imagine how much learning is going to happen that day. Like nothing. So it's it's changed things there with that. Another thing we've done is adding regulatory breaks to our learning. And it's something we do maybe around every 30 minutes to 45 minutes, just a chance to reset the brain, to reset the body when we're transitioning between activities. Because I mean, we all know that transition times are the worst times, especially for children that have trauma or neurodiverse. So just those subtle changes has meant our classroom and school environment is just a calm place to be. You know, we have visitors all the time and they always comment on how quiet and calm it is. And the third and final change was making our physical environment more regulatory and relational as well. In New Zealand, I don't, I'm not sure if you have this in the States, but there's this concept of a friendship chair. Essentially, a friendship chair or a friendship bench is a, is a chair for a child that perhaps doesn't have friends or is struggling socially and emotionally. But when I look at that and I think about what I was like at elementary school level, if a child was sitting on their bench, I'd be the first one to go and tease them and bully them, right? We all have plenty of kids in the school like that. So I thought that doesn't really work for me. And a new thing now in New Zealand is because we're, we're so, what's the word, reactive to things. Instead of doing things authentically and organically, and we're token. So instead of that, we've created a space. It's about the, the length of four classrooms and we call it the quiet place. And it's just a place children can go to at recess or before school, just hang out and chill. And there's no one skateboarding through that space. There's no one throwing a ball at them through that space. It's just a quiet place. There's a whole bunch of plants and native bushes there. So it's, you've got the elements of regulation as well, because nature's regulating. And the second part of that is we created a sensory garden. We were very fortunate to have a whole, whole bunch of native bush and plants already at school. And we created a, a pathway that runs through there. Uh, so it's based around reflexology. So the children use the, the space in bare feet. So no shoes. So they're physically grounded. In Te Ao Māori in New Zealand, um, we talk about grounding our children in Papa Tuanuku, who is the earth mother. So it's that physical and it's that um, ancestral connection to the land. And in the space as well, there's elements of smells. So there's different plants in there. We've got jasmine. We have things kids can touch and manipulate. There's things they can touch and sounds produce. So we've thought about our senses. So it's a really, really large space. That culmination of things, I believe, is the reason that things are generally pretty calm here, the reason that we did so well in the awards. And a lot of that stuff we had in place prior to learning about the neurosequential model in education. But what the model did was it gave us the words to truly explain why we're doing the stuff we did, because it was just intrinsic. We know our kids need this, but we couldn't really explain why. Now we have the words and the theory to back it up. You need to make t-shirts that say, to change the system, you need to step away from the system. I just starred that. I thought it was so powerful. Everyone just keeps trying to make these, oh, let's just adjust this and adjust this. No, we actually need to purge ourselves of the existing system. It is yes. not working. 
what Jay's triggered in me was the flood experience because like him, my last year of teaching was in a makeshift school after our school was 100% destroyed. But the experience taught us a lot. So I want to ask you a, a parallel kind of question about it. What, what we learned, I will say clearly, is that you must prepare and take care of your staff first to be ready to hold these kids after a tragedy or after any, any kind of struggle. What kind of strategies can you share to help prepare your staff to be one with you and see the same vision? Because that was a, probably a very transitional change, a big change, a big transition. I think that was the actual reason that I was so emotionally um, drained and, and ready to quit was because I, I almost had no access to my staff. So what happened was that the, the rain came in at night. So school was closed the next day. So our children didn't physically come to school, but our staff did. But I had to spend hours on the phone, hours talking to government officials coming in around health and safety. So I was from about five in the morning until midnight every day, either on the phone or in meetings with people for about three or four days straight. As that happened, I had to observe and witness my staff doing all the physical manual labor. We actually got rid of 12 or 13 ton of soil and bark that we had to physically shovel out as a staff. So when I come in at 6 a.m. in the morning for a meeting, and one of my staff members who's in her mid-60s is on her hands and knees with buckets shoveling stuff out. That's really hard to watch as a leader because in every other kind of way, I'd be the first person there doing all that physical work. But I wasn't able to be. And I'm sure that's that's the part that truly affected me that for the first time in, in my career here at Henry Hill School, I couldn't actually do the real work. I think it might have been the 9th or 10th of November. So we, we still had about another six weeks left of a school year after that because we finished our school year mid-December. Mid by all accounts, the government had said to us that we won't be reopening that year. We opened again in six days because of the work our staff put in, because over 200 people from our school community came in to help with the rebuild and the fix. So whilst we didn't have access to 70% of our school, we just crammed in all the children in the space that we had for that final six weeks. After that, COVID happened again, and you know we were, we're back to being locked down, and, and I don't feel like we've, we've recovered from about March 2020. No, nothing's been the same since. I think about our community, and it's just more crap on top of crap for them. They're, they're very used to being marginalized and the system not listening. When we're flooded, that's just another layer. When COVID happens, that's just another layer on top of another layer, and they never get any kind of break from it. I would guess to some degree, and it's interesting to say that you felt like you didn't do much. I would argue opposite, as I'm guessing some of your staff would, that just inherently by building a community that was so focused on regulation and relationships that when shit hit the fan, yeah. they could lean into that. They could lean yeah. into that. So I think that was probably pretty powerful. You shifted the system. You really focused on, it sounds like, four key things, relationships, regulation, trauma, and the physical environment. What we know is that by changing, by bringing new and novel things, it automatically activates the human stress response system. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, how did you do all this then? How did you do all this change while fully acknowledging that you probably had some teachers that were like, what the heck is happening? How did you balance that? What I learned from Steve, I took directly back to staff and we were able to talk about children, children we were struggling with. But we're able to look at them through that uh, neuroscience lens for the first time. In all schools, we try not to be deficit in the way we, we talk about kids. But, you know, some kids are tough work, right? But when you look at them through that, that neuroscience lens, 
when you start looking at what's going on for this child and what happened to them rather than behavior, you don't actually see behavior anymore. And I think for the most part, the term behavior is not used at school anymore, uh, which is which is really positive. So I think by acknowledging that our children are hard was the first step. And we're doing the best we can with what we have at the time, but also knowing that there's these other tools and strategies out there that are going to actually help us and aid us in changing perhaps the child's behavior, but we had to change ourselves first. And I think part of it is me modeling by example, because if you went and asked children, say five years ago, that that landed in my office, a lot of them physically landed out of my office too. Um, so I've changed my approach to to working with children. And one of the most interesting things I, I learned, and, and I've shared this with people, and they're like, yeah, no shit. Um, but I didn't get this. So in my community, I look like the community. And I've always thought that's been a massive advantage for me, that I look like them. And I think it is in a lot of ways. But through learning um, through neuroscience, that for some of our children, I unfortunately probably resemble their abusers in lots of ways. So having to learn about the intimacy barrier and, and changing lots of things like proxemics, like change, changing physical distance between myself and the child when, when speaking. I remember talking to one child, he was so dysregulated, he was on one side of the rugby field. I was on the opposite side of the field. We, we were yelling, not because we were angry, because that's the only way we could hear each other to communicate. We were so far away. After some time, we were able to get a lot closer together. That's not how I would have handled it before. So I, I think what it's done is it's changed, changed me um, I've modeled that. I mean, I, I still go very bottom brain sometimes. It, it happened yesterday. So regardless of what I know and my understanding of the brain, we still make mistakes. We, we're still human and we still revert back to what we knew over time. It, it's it's made a tremendous difference to their practice. And like I said, we don't always get it right either. I don't get it right. They don't get it right all the time either. But it's changed the way we look at children, the way we talk with children, the way we talk about our children. I love the fact that you were vulnerable enough to say that you said it for all of us, right? We don't always get it right. Yeah. But the cool thing is, I, I think we we know how to fix it after we get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and that's that's a, a really precious thing to know. And I think obviously that has happened in your experience. I'd like to go down just a different trail for a yeah. minute that's really important. And that's Maori culture and the beautiful emphasis on community, those truths have found their way to lots of us. I think we would love to hear you detail a little bit of the power of Maori culture to help you create the community you've managed to create at Henry Hill School. I think in Dr. Perry's book with Oprah Winfrey, What Happened to You, that, that whole final chapter is dedicated to New Zealand. I, I cried when I read it because it was someone I respected and valued talking about my culture. And I think if we went back to say the 1950s and 60s, that's when things really changed for Māori in New Zealand because urbanization happened. So we moved away from living together in villages. So, so if I went back even further, Māori lived together. We lived in heterogeneous communities. So you had mum, dad, kids, you had grandparents, probably aunties, uncles, cousins, all living in the same space all very close to each other in, in different um, buddy or, or homes. And we lived like that for centuries. And then through urbanization in the 50s and 60s in New Zealand, Māori moved away from their homes because the industry at the time here was, was based around, call it the freezing works or the meat works here. New Zealand's very big with meat production and, and um, they needed laborers. 
And at the time, Māori were only thought as as only being good for labouring work. So they actually moved from those strong, tight-knit communities and they moved to communities for work. But what they did was it moved them away from, from the, that strength and power of family. Back in the day, when, when something was, you know, if mum was overwhelmed with baby or something else, her mother or her sister or auntie would already swooped in that already taken baby before mum even knew what was happening, before she even knew she was dysregulated. You know, it's just how it works. And we also know that a young boy had all these teachers around him. He had older brothers and cousins and uncles. So when families went away and they moved away from their support systems, it changed how we lived. So prior to the 1950s and 1960s, domestic violence and, and physical violence statistics in New Zealand, it was the white people, New Zealand Europeans, that dominated those statistics. After urbanisation happened to Māori, they then dominated those statistics. They now dominate incarceration statistics and health statistics. And it all happened once we moved away from those strong support systems. To me, Dr. Perry said, and what happened to you was, was perfect. He talked about an American boy that was struggling. And he said what he needed was whanaungatanga. What he needed was people or his people around him running around on the marae. And that's what we had. We lived in those really strong family-based systems. And again, through urbanization, that moved away. So for Māori, when I, when I learned about uh, the six R's and I think about things like kapahaka, so behind me on the wall, there's a, a picture of a, a boy performing kapahaka. You may have seen the haka done when the All Blacks play rugby before, perhaps. But it's something we do that is rhythmic. And it's regulating, it's repetitive, and it's all that kind of stuff. And I even think about the crossover to learning. When I was at school and I learned math, everything was repetitive, it was rhythmic, and we went away from that in New Zealand for so long, and now it's come back. So, so for Māori, we've done these things forever. Songs were healing. Being together was healing. When someone passes away and they die in our family for Māori, we have a thing called tangihana. It's a three- to five-day process. It happens on a marae, so everyone comes together on the marae. The body is there. Family get to spend time with the body, so it's an open casket. In our culture, it's, it's sacred that the, the body has to be kept warm, so there always has to be someone sitting with the body. So families will come in and out, and they'll sit with the body, and we'll tell stories, um, and we'll sing together, and we'll laugh together, and we'll cry together. And by the time that three-day period's over, there's a whole bunch of healing that's happened. And I think to the other side of my culture, to my mum's side, it's just a real different experience. There's nothing rhythmic or regulating or anything about it. Family is just at the top for Māori. It's everything. And we live together. And now, sadly for Māori, I mean, I'm at a school with 300 children. The majority of our children don't know where they're from. The majority of their parents don't know where they come from either. So in a very short time, we've been so colonised that we've almost lost all our identity. I'm very grateful that you brought up all those examples because I think we do not acknowledge the relational poverty that we live in enough. And I think it does a disservice and I think it, it continues to just keep us in this cycle that is so unhealthy, especially in schools. To your point, right? You go into school and it's, when I mean, you were a teacher, it's one teacher to 30 kids. You go into an early, early childhood center it's one caregiver to six to eight kids. And that's if you're lucky and you can afford a place like that. And so I think until we acknowledge and really dig deep into what are the ramifications for this continual relational poverty that we live in, education will continue to suffer. I think that's, that's right, that relational poverty. I, only recently I've been made aware, not sure I haven't understood this before, but for five days a week, I live in relational poverty at school. 
because I live amongst the stories of our children, of their families every single day. I actually live in the community where my school is and probably about maybe a quarter to a third of our staff do as well, which I think is really rich that we're in the same community. But whilst I live in the same community, I live a very privileged life compared to most people in my community. I mean, I just came back from the States. I couldn't name another family that's even been overseas. So I'm very fortunate to live a privileged life. But for five days a week, I'm living in relational poverty from 9 a.m. till 3 p.m. because I hear the stories. I had a couple of children in my office yesterday that they've made a couple of mistakes that, that all kind of almost teenage children make. And we had a talk just hearing about how scared they were to go home because of what was going to happen to them. And typically, I'd hear stories like that about dads. Dad's going to do this to me when I get home because I've done this wrong. But they were talking about mums. It was so disheartening. So I was able to sit there and talk to these girls and say, you know, that's not right. What's happening? And say, when you have children, you need to make sure that physical violence is not a way to deal with things that go wrong in your home when you're an adult. And I was able to share with them uh, my upbringing and physical violence in my home. And these, these kids are crying and I'm crying with them in my office because it's it's real. Um, but that was really disheartening to hear. So your relational poverty, absolutely. Much like you said earlier, Jessica, that in New Zealand we had a system called PB4L, which I believe is similar to PBIS. So in New Zealand, we'd rather ignore trauma like it didn't happen, we just brush it and put it under the mat. And let's instead give children rubber bracelets to put on their hands or their wrists with school values on it. That'll fix things. And that's how disconnected we are in New Zealand. Um, we hold, it's called a hui, which is a Māori word for meeting. Once a month, we hold meetings here at night for uh, mums and dads. We hold them separately. And it's essentially them having a space to share their trauma. So it's a bit like therapy and group therapy session. Um, and I lead those sessions and, and I share all my stuff. And it's been really um, healing for me, being able to share my trauma with our community and then to share their stuff as well. And, you know, we, we get, we've had some people that have turned up to multiple and still haven't spoken, but afterwards thank me and say, that was great. I, I learned a lot. One day they might speak or, or maybe they just need to listen. And it's, it's really changing some lives. I know we are nearing the end of our time, but I just, for the fun of it, have to ask Jace, because he's the best NBA fan I've ever met, and I think he should tell us why. I don't think I've ever spoken on this on a podcast, but I, I like, you, like you know now, I didn't have my Māori identity. But as a teenager, I had two identities. I had hip-hop, hip-hop culture, uh, which is something I grasped to. Um, and the other part of my culture is um, NBA basketball. You know, I, I grew up with Michael Jordan as my hero. I came up in that era. So I had someone to look up to and to resonate with, and it was Michael Jordan. And it was hip-hop, because hip-hop's about struggle, if, if, you, if you take it down to grassroots level, right? And that's kind of where I felt like as a rebellious teenager at the time. 20, 30 years later, still listen to hip-hop, still love basketball. And, and I believe it's why, because when I didn't have an identity and culture, I found those two things. Wow. Well, I can't thank you enough. Steve, MVP for hooking up this interview. I'll send your award in the mail. MVP. I love it. I'll be looking for it, Jessica. I'll be looking for it. I'll get right on that. Jace, thank you so much. Thank you for, for changing the system. Thank you for sharing your story. I recognize the time change. I recognize that you have been traveling nonstop. So I also appreciate that you just gave us your time in the midst of a little bit of chaos for you. It really meant a lot. 
Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you, my friend. Just a beautiful conversation.